Let's read this and consider it together. So Genesis chapter 11, verse, verse 1, starts by saying, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of God. And we're considering it this morning under the title, uh, Making a Name for Ourselves. Because really, that's what the people of this day say they're doing this project for. We're going to build a tower to the heavens so... We can make a name for ourselves. And that's, that's pretty, pretty bold, and at least they're being honest about what's going on. They want to exalt themselves, uh, even to the position, as it were, of God himself. And if you know the backstory of Genesis and you've been reading uh, along, then you understand that this shouldn't really be a surprise. This is kind of what's been happening the whole time. Uh, God has designed us to find our sense of satisfaction and meaning and worth in making his name great. And instead, we want to make our own great as well. And there's always trouble that comes along with that, and we'll take a look at that. But speaking of names, uh, there's always there's a debate. It depends on what sphere you live in. Who was the greatest of all time, right? Was it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? And if you're in, living in the basketball world, uh, you tend to have some debates over that, and you'll make arguments for one or the other. And you'll share statistics, and you'll talk about maybe their position and the era in which they lived. You know, they weren't quite the same type of player, but uh, is it titles? Is it whatever the case may be? How about Messi or Ronaldo? <laughs> See, some people are giving some, some names out there, too. And you get it. Um, Ninja or Tifu? Do you even know who those people are? None of you play Fortnite. <laughs> All right, they're big Fortnite names. Anyway, well, if you're going to, um, if you're going to debate these things, you have to have information uh, about it. And typically, you may just call up a name, you know, and, and say it, but you have to have some reasons for why that's important. Now, when it comes to the Bible, uh, people are going to have different opinions as well. But the the Bible itself claims to say that you have to have some sort of opinion about what it says, and you've got to kind of stand on, is, is this the greatest of all time? Is this God's message to man? Answering questions like, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Is there anything that comes next? How do I explain the things that I see around me? And whether or not you realize that you have some sort of functioning way for answering those questions, 
But the Bible comes in and says it has the answer. It's pretty exclusivistic. So if that's true, if it makes those claims, it makes sense for you to spend some time, I would suggest, living with those. And especially if you're somebody who has said, yes, I'm a follower of God. A lot of people who live in that would say, yeah, reading the Bible, for example, is important. The Bible gives us kind of a roadmap for how we live life and how we interact with a God who's living and who's still speaking to us. But a lot of the people I know who, who say that spend very little time actually interacting with what they say the source of their hope and their life is. That's part of why we're challenging you this year to read along with us chronologically through the entire Bible and to sit down. It, it's a little bit of a commitment, um, but not that big of a one for what we would say is a huge return on your investment. If you're already behind, that's okay. You can catch up. Uh, we've just made it through Genesis 1 to 11. 11 is the last chapter, and then we take a break, and we started into Job because Job was living at about this time, Genesis 10 and 11, which is the nature of the chronological Bible. Rather than reading Genesis, Exodus, it will stop and look at some things that are in the context of what's happening. So next week, we'll be looking at Job. And every week, my messages will come from the previous week's reading. So that's not just a teaser for you to join along, but consider for a moment some of these statements from the Bible itself, if you can see that. I know some of you maybe need to put some glasses on and check it out. But here's what it says in Hebrews 4.12. You might be familiar with this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So the Bible itself is saying, this is God's word that's alive. It's active. It's not just dusty and it doesn't apply anymore. It's, it's irrelevant. It has an ongoing interaction, no matter where you live or where you're from, with you. But of course, you need to interact with it for it to have its effect on you. And you'll be familiar with this verse as well in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it's not just uh, when you finally get to the Gospel of John. Now we got some good stuff there to work with. The Timothy and, and Paul writing to Timothy would understand that even as the Old Testament. All of God's words are useful for us. And they're going to give us some direction. When Paul was talking about uh, Jesus, and he had, not this Paul, but the Paul in the Bible uh, was talking about arguing in the synagogue. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament was talking about. You know, the, the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Some of these people said, well, tell us more about that. And is it really true? We read there in Acts 17 that the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They didn't just take his word for it. They looked into the Bible. So I just want to give you some encouragement at the beginning of the year again to consider diving into this word of God, as it, as it claims, and let, it, let the word do its work in, in your heart. And uh, I think you'll be encouraged and challenged. If you do that, of course, and you open up to Genesis chapter 1, you read in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the picture that the Bible gives of, 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 of how things used to be is formless, empty, void. There was chaos. There was nothing. And yet, we see at the beginning that there's hope. The Spirit of God 
right in the beginning of Genesis, is hovering, poised to do something. It's not just hopeless because the Spirit of God is at work. And I think some of us feel like our lives can be like that as well, completely hopeless. But here we have, even at the beginning of Genesis, the message of hope. The Spirit of God is here, and he can do something. He can speak meaning, value, significance. He can create structure within which his creation can flourish. And that's what you see in Genesis chapter 1, this structure of God's creation, dividing and ordering and speaking things into being. And it underscores the, the vision the Bible has of a God who's powerful. Just with his word, he speaks things into existence that didn't exist before. Out of chaos, he makes structure. And he makes us. And he gives us meaning. And he creates us in his image. And he says, you're good. You have value. You're imaginative and creative and wonderful and uniquely gifted. And yet limited in many ways. Because man has limited days. Well, at least that's what happens after Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 are enticed by this figure who's a serpent, and we believe to be Satan, who is a fallen angel, comes in and says, you know what? Look at all this. You know, God says, here's all these good things I've given you. I've given you a lot of great things. Refrain from this one thing. And Satan comes in and says, well, why do you say that? See, he's pointing to what God has limited to their access Instead of saying, man, you guys got a lot of good stuff going on here. Uh, this is amazing. And so we started looking at what we don't have and saying, well, gosh, maybe we can, if we become God, be over more control of that as well. There's access he's limited us to. God knows for our good that that has been restricted, but Satan says, nah, he's keeping you from something. And it was, it was remarkable as our power and capabilities are, they do have boundaries. Sin enters, death enters, and we're broken. And all of creation is broken. It's trying to live outside those boundaries that seems to get us in trouble or being dissatisfied with them on some level. And we see that happen a lot in early in Genesis. And then we get here even to set the, the context for today's message. In verses 1 through 4, we see it happening again. When you read that piece about the whole world having one language and a one speech, but they say, come, let's build ourselves a tower of the heavens and make a name for ourselves. Moses, who we believe wrote these things from the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis, has focused on God's intent to bless mankind by providing them what is good. But man has repeatedly failed to trust God, and we heard that, even how hard it is to trust God. We want to kind of make our own way, as it were, make our own names and our, write our own storylines. And we forfeited the good which God has provided. So these chapters right before chapter 11 highlight the resulting alienation. Man from God in chapter 3, husband from wife in chapter 3, man from the land in chapter 3, brother from brother in chapter 4, children from parents in chapter 9, and now in chapter 11, just people groups. Here we have the, the formation, one, one group of people gathered together, one language, and now because of their hubris and pride, they're being scattered. And you have the, the genesis, as it were, of languages. And because of that, cultures that are going to divide rather than to unite, and that's where man, ran, man's rebellion has come. Tremendous unity and potential here, unlike it's ever been since, because there was one language and one speech. And there was amazing opportunity. One set of words. Man, is that unified. I don't know if you've realized that 
communication's hard when you don't understand somebody. I mean, forget about man and woman type stuff, using the same set of words generally. But if, you tra- if you've ever traveled overseas or whatever, it's, it's challenging. You know, we, we went to visit Rebecca Cool uh, in the hospital. She's doing much better for those of you who have been praying for her. She's home, and, and that's great. But just before us was a Spanish-speaking family, and the lady at the Odessa University Hospital was speaking into her phone and then showing the person what the translation was. And that's great. We've made some wonderful technological advances to kind of reduce the barriers there. But I don't think they understood what was being said to begin with. And plus, you need some technology to communicate that. And it's limited in scope. All these misunderstandings that we have, there's some beauty. Culture is beautiful, and God redeems that. But there's also something that necessarily divides when you just don't understand what somebody else's experience in life is because there's been a tremendous difference as a result. You know, when I was um, studying in, in seminary too, I had a good friend, Chris, who's one of my, uh, I went fishing with him from, uh, on occasion. He was the best fisherman I ever fished with and I asked him one night, hey Chris, you want to go fishing tomorrow? And he said, ain't again it. I said, what? He said, ain't again it. I'm not against it, was the translation for ain't again it, for a a guy in Alabama who grew up, you know, shooting, eating squirrels, basically is what he did, so that's some of my vocabulary too, and I'll say that from time to time in case you ever hear me, that's what I'm saying, again it, Um, you know, language is, and I'm, I'm fascinated by language, but it's hard, it's hard with these divides that happen, unity fed their pride and led them to an ill-fated quest. And it seems like there's at least two quests. You could do a lot with this text. But just to highlight a couple things. One of the things they're seeking, they're on a quest for identity. That's very obvious. So they say, let's make a name for ourselves by building a tower that reaches to heavens. A name uh, in the Hebrew, Shem, is name. These are the Shemites. So it's attached, if you know the Hebrew Bible as well, to your identity. Your name says something about you. And they want to build their own reputation and identity. And so you can conclude pretty easily that their worth or their identity is attached to their achievement. What they do and how successful they are at doing it defines how they feel about themselves and even putting themselves Here it seems like in the position of God. And that's always shaky ground. And we do similar things when our identity is attached to our accomplishments. And believe me, it's very subtle. We don't always realize that this is the case. Uh, But oftentimes it it may be more brash and obvious like this. And if we succeed in an an endeavor, we say this is what I'm going to do and I do it, then one of the outcomes oftentimes is to give ourselves credit. There's some, sort, some form of pride. And a lot of times we'll give God credit. But at the end of the day, we know we did it, right? I mean, like, you know, you can say, yeah, God gave me the abilities, but I did it. Um, and it's baptized and it looks beautiful. Uh, but a lot of times underneath there's some, some things happening under the surface. And if we fail, what do we do with that? We're going to blame others. You know, you kept me from doing it. Or perhaps we'll beat ourselves up and say I'm worthless, you know. I, 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 whether it's academic accomplishments or employee, you know, being a, in a job or even relational accomplishments, you know, in marriages. 
And you look at people with maybe a failed marriage and you say, well, I'm better than they are. Subtly, because my marriage is fine. Or whatever the case may be. And that's all very much finding your identity and how things turn out, kids. You know, by the measurement of society. It's, it's so subtle. But all behind it is finding your identity and what you've done. And this is what's happening here in Genesis chapter 11. And what we do is an important part of who we are, of course. God gifts us in certain ways. But it's easy to start measuring ourselves by our accomplishments. You know, I've been, I've been thinking just recently about how to, how to think about, you know, life and you know, are you on the right path and, uh, you know, church and all that kind of stuff too. And there's questions that come in your mind. I had a mentor a handful of years ago who was a very successful Procter and Gamble guy, higher up, and lived all around the world. And, um, and he asked me, what does success look like? That was a question that he asked. You know, what is, what, that, that was something that he took into, the, into the, his world and said, kind of, re, you know, you re-engineer, you say, what does success look like? What do we want this to look like? And then you look back and you say, what steps you need to put in place to get there? Does that sound like a Procter & Gamble thing, Winetta? <laughs> okay, good. So, and he was kind of helping with, with ministry too. And I'm saying, okay, well, how do I have a successful ministry, right? And I've just been wondering recently if that's the right question. <laughs> because one of the, you know, it's, if you're Procter & Gamble and you have prophets, you can say we've succeeded because of the profit line. But is that what the, God's calling, say, the church to? Or even you as a parent or whatever? And it, it could be, but... Uh, perhaps, but is the question, what does success look like? Or is it, da-da-da-da, what does faithfulness look like? And I, I say that because I wonder if God isn't inviting us from the beginning to be faithful to what he's called us to do. And the success, as we may or may not measure it, is something that he is in control of. What, what does success look like? And one, one of the dialogues with this person for me was, in this person's case, and he's um, uh, not, not in my circles anymore, was that he would only give money to ministries that had baptisms. So he said, how many baptisms did they have? I will give money to them. And I, I you know, I, I'm sort of a devil's advocate in a lot of things anyway, but I gave a little pushback, and I said, well, I'm glad Hudson Taylor didn't have that measurement. If you know his name, because he spent most of his life in China with absolutely no measurable fruits whatsoever. And yet I would suggest that part of the movement in China of the masses coming is because of some of the work that people like that did who just reached, had hard ground and just were telling, telling, telling their whole lives and died, never saw anything. Was he faithful to what God called him to do? So then the question becomes, what's God calling you to? And are you being faithful to the calling God has put in your life? What does faithfulness look like? God's revealed something and you do it. You're being obedient to what he's called you to do. It makes me think of the parable even of the stewards. You know, some, some had this return, some had this return, some had this return. The issue wasn't how much the return was. Did you do what God called you to do with it? It's faithfulness. So when God calls you into his kingdom, even and God, the, the, the son who, who pleased his father, what was the words? Well done, good and successful servant right? You were successful. Well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, by, by many measurements, Jesus' life was a failure. He didn't really start doing public ministry till later in life, only for a few years, was betrayed by one of his best friends, hung on a cross, and died. Would you consider that successful? I mean, we know that God has a bigger plan, but he was being faithful 
to what God called him to do. You know, Satan tempted him with success. Hey, you can avoid all the pain and have success and get everything done without doing God's plan. But of course, we know that was a lie. And there's a subtle way that we measure our things too. And I'm just, just exploring with you if maybe even in our own lives we don't ask a question more like, what does faithfulness look like? Because if you start asking what does success look like, you might end up trying to build a tower to the heavens and saying, look at how awesome we are. Haven't we made a great name for ourselves? And you know, that ends up poorly all the time. And it may, for the moment, feel pretty good. But in the long run, you haven't done what God has called you to do. And it's, it's explicit here. And if you look at it back at Genesis chapter 9, for example, he had called them to do something. God said to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. In other words, go out, scatter. And they find a place they kind of like and say, let's build a name for ourselves and not scatter. That's the second thing they say. They're not being faithful to what God's called them to do. They're getting distracted with their own glory. They want to make their own names great. So as you're kind of thinking about, oh, what's life about and what does success look like? I mean, I don't think it's always a bad question. It just may not be the right one all the time. And there's another question here that you might, it kind of comes along with it. I think for you teenagers and stuff, what am I supposed to do with my life, you know? And you can re-ask that in your 40s. Like, what am I supposed to do with all that, whenever the case may be? But I think it seems like the scripture on the whole is encouraging you more to ask, who am I supposed to be? No, God, God's interested in who are you? What's your character like? Who are you to be? And the reason I say that is because what am I supposed to do does tend to be a pretty Western question. You know, there's a lot of people in this world who don't have a choice about what they're going to do. They're just trying to make a, a way. In life. They don't have the opportunity to take personality tests and whatever the case may be. They just have to put food on the table. Period. And those things are all good. <laughs> if we have the opportunity to say, God, how have you designed me and where can I plug myself into my space and time for your glory and where am I fulfilled? Those are kind of luxury questions that not everybody has. You can find that path and not be the person God's called you to be. Or you can do something that you don't feel fulfilled in but still be a witness and a testimony because of your character and your goodness. J- Jamar Tisby I follow him uh, on Twitter. He has a podcast called Pass the Mic, and he's involved in something called The Witness, an African-American young man, probably 30 years old. And I'm always interested in hearing his kind of insights on how things are going. He's very active on his, his Twitter feed. And he, he posted something a few days ago that said this. I spent 10 years as a middle school teacher and principal. But if I knew then what I know now, I would have focused even more on character I run into former students all the time, and what matters is not their occupation, but their integrity and how they treat others. So that's what matters most. And that's something that even Solomon, who we'll meet later in the Bible, says, you know, Proverbs 22, a good name is better than perfume. You, you ladies who want to smell pretty and everything and get Christmas gifts. And, and I, I know that doesn't resonate with the guys, maybe. Good perfume, good name. I don't really want a good name. It, there's other images in the Bible to suggest that's a good thing for guys as well. A good name, character. That's what's to be desired. Ironically, though, that doesn't come from what you do. It comes from who you are. And what these people are trying to build their names with is something they do instead of just being who, what God has called them to do, who he's called them to be. 
So this quest for identity ends up being an endgame that is not going to work out very well. And what happens at, at Babel is this, fundamentally. Picture a car. And you know, you've got people in the front seat and everyone says, what do you say when you've got a driver and there's an empty seat and there's four people? And you want to be up in the front seat? Shotgun, right? You call a shotgun. What's in the, what's, what, who's going to sit in the front seat? And if you think of concepts in, in the Tower of Babel, in my mind anyway, what happens at Babel is this. The front seat, for them, is accomplishment. And the back seat's character. What I do matters more than who I am. Or you might also say the front seat is success. Look at us. Look how great we are. Measurable. Instead of faithfulness. Just being true to what God's called you to do. By the way, not always measurable. It's very hard to measure faithfulness. It's very easy to measure success. Even if it's falsely measured. Or the front seat here is self-sufficiency. And the back seat's reliance on God. Look at what we're going to do. We don't really need God. We can make a name for ourselves. And that seems to be what the story of Babel is all about. That can happen at work, as a student, as a parent, as a child. It can happen in ministry as well, as we've said. They're reaching to the heavens to prove their status. They don't need God to descend to them because they'll storm the gates of heaven themselves. Now, what's really interesting about this thing we call the gospel, the good news of Christ, is that we, we have such a tendency to do this in, in God's economy and in God's plan. It's, it's kind of interesting because the gospel actually does says, you know, at the end of the day, it is all about achievement but it's not about your achievement and that's what's so different about it it's like God kind of knows I think we're wired sort of to what to to doing and to success and and he says you know what it is about that but here's the thing you could never measure up so I've given somebody who can there's somebody who's come in your place to meet all those kind of innate things that even came as a result of the fall man can never actually reach heaven so heaven came down to us Man could never perfectly obey all God has commanded, so God wrapped himself in flesh and walked with perfect obedience in the person of Jesus. He did what we could not. And what's more, the cornerstone of his achievements, Jesus, is not pride like man's, but humility. It's a beautiful passage in Philippians 2. We see God sending his son, clothing himself in flesh, being found in appearance as man, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't going after God's place, but he made himself nothing. He became a servant. He was the most humble of all. And as a result, God exalted him and gave him what? The name that is above all names. Here's God who could have come with pride but came in humility, and as a result, he was exalted. He's got the name above all names so that at the name of Jesus, not at the name of you or me or these people, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess in heaven on earth and under the earth that he is Lord. And that's to God's glory. That's the gospel. So the way of the gospel is grounded in humility, not in pride. And our quest for identity is found in the person of Christ. He's answered those questions. He's done it. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. And he calls us by name. I love the image in John 10, too, of their shepherd calls you by name. It's not like your name doesn't matter. He's given these people jobs and families and things to do, but they're not satisfied with that. 
And I think the, God, well, the good news of Christ reframes that so that our name does have value because of what Christ has spoken to it. So there's not only a, a quest here as we see for pride uh, or, or for identity, but there's also a quest for security because they don't just say, let's make a name for ourselves, but they say, let's name, make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And they, we saw in Genesis 9, they've already been told, you know, fill the earth, go. But in, in addition to this, it seems clear they just don't want to scatter because they value the comfort of familiarity, of what is known, of what is predictable, of what can be controlled. So in effect, God said, go, and they're like, nah, we're good. We're good. We got this. <laughs> On our own. We'll stay here. And so fear basically is driving them to create their own sense of safety. We'll construct a place that's safe for us. We don't want to go out there. We can make ourselves be like God. We can create our own sense of safety right here. There's disobedience, but underneath it appears to be a simple lack of trust. I mean, I see this spilling over in different ways, too. Suburbs are designed to be places of safety. You know, cul-de-sacs or, or places where you know, everyone's going to be okay and safe. Which, ironically, I've heard studies show that they're much more dangerous <laughs> than other, other places because you're lured into this sense of okayness. And you're not. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no real guarantees there, right? And it's, in some strange way, when you're, when you're scattered and you're going places and you're more profoundly aware of your need for God, you're, you're much safer, in many respects. And when we create our own uh, places where we feel like we're completely safe. I mean, if anything, 9-11 shook us up as a nation. I know that's ancient history now. We aren't as safe as we think we are, right? You can, and so where did people go? To a place where they felt like they could find it. And that's what God's doing is driving us to say, I am the tower of refuge and strength as well. So there's two quests here. Now, something happens in the second half, and we won't spend as much time on this. There's a divine response. So man is continuing in rebellion. God responds with judgment and mercy in verses 5 through 9. It's, I don't know if any of you are familiar with despair.com. Have ever seen any of these things? You're called demotivators. They're very, very funny. It's my sense of humor. This, this one is ambition. You know, the journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. So here's a salmon returning to his, uh, after thousands of miles, and he's eaten by a grizzly bear <laughs> uh, along the way. It's, it's kind of sad. But it feels a little bit like this story. Like, here we are building a big tower. Let's get all of our resources together. We're going up to God, and God just kind of comes down. It's funny because the tower is supposed to reach to heaven. He actually has to descend to come down to them. They're so small, tiny, and insignificant. And he comes on down, and he just scatters them and this journey ended very badly for, for them didn't accomplish what they were intending to right and ambition is good put in the right direction but here they're trying to build themselves up and with judgment here or with <clears throat> disobedience comes consequences all right this is the parent in me speaking to the child now right that parental tone is so annoying isn't it kids when there's the instruction you know there's what you sow, you reap. I mean, there, uh, the, the Bible's pretty clear about that. There's, there's something that comes with disobedience. And God demonstrates that even through the confusion of languages. The balal. It's a play on words here too. Man's project 
fails and man is confused. So now, some of the consequences are there are barriers that arise. And we see the result of that, even in cross-cultural communications. I mean, can you imagine if we just had one, we're able to say, speak all the same language? Be amazing. But we don't know that. Instead of comfort and security, man is dispersed and unsettled, and that's the irony to it. They wanted to create a safe place, and God ends up dis- dispersing them. The practical spillover today is pretty noticeable. So many divisions and barriers due to language and culture. And the frustration you might feel from cross-cultural confusion, if you've ever had it, is a product of the Tower of Babel. But judgment, as you'll see all throughout the Bible, is always mingled with mercy. Uh, and that, that seems a little odd. The sense here is that if you're reading this, it, it feels like God is limiting man, taking away his full potential. They can do anything. We need to go make sure they don't. As if he's threatened. And that's sort of the sense. You could read it that way. Well, clearly he's not threatened because he can speak one word and bring everything tumbling down. So the sense behind it instead is they don't know the threat to them if they do this. They're unaware of how this is going to jeopardize their sense of who they are as the one who's been created. So he comes and he scatters them. God knows this, like we've seen before in Mercy. Freedom has boundaries. It just always, it always does. We have this sense that, uh, I think, is it Vermont or something? One, one of the New Hampshire, no limits, no boundaries or something. Somebody know that license plate? It's about freedom. Is it Vermont? Yeah. And it's, it's, it sounds kind of nice. Can you imagine if there were no boundaries as you go home on the roads today? It's, it had no rules. Go to India, you'll figure it out a little bit. Kind of what it's like, although it's organized chaos. There's still some sort of rules that are going on dictating you end up with chaos if there's no rules. And your desire to be free. And God knows there's limitations for our good. We don't like that always because we feel like you're taking my freedom. But here's how you thrive. He says, here's what it looks like for you to be who I have created you to be. That's what the Garden of Eden was about, even with the tree, it seems. And the Ten Commandments. Here's how you live life well. Dieting. It's the new year. How many of you have New Year's resolutions about eating? If you say, I'm free to eat whatever I want. Okay. Over the long run, that's going to have some ramifications. If you really want to be free in the sense of design, you've got to limit yourself and restrict yourself in some ways. I mean, you know it's tough, but if you're exercising and eating well, at the end of the day, you, you feel good. Yeah, and if you just, uh, there's a sense of freedom, you know, intuitively from that, even if you've limited yourself. And it, it seems to be that's what God's saying. Freedom has limits, and I've given you those, and I've given you a place to be content and thrive, but you don't seem satisfied. So he intervenes, and he scatters them. And the mercy is not just that he's going to give them a chance to experience him in a new way, but the confusion leads to scattering, which is what he has told them to do. Go, you know, fill, fill this place. No, we're going to huddle together. So what happens, he, ex, 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 you know, ex, expands them on his own. He scatters them. This happens all throughout history, and especially in churches, because we're extremely well known for wanting to create safe places where we gather together in a big circle and say, look at you, you're awesome, you're great, aren't we fantastic? They're terrible out there. We're really great and cozy and happy. And that's not what God's called. The, the church is a mission outpost. 
It's a place where you're equipped to go. Not just to gather, but to scatter. One of the frustrations of living in a place like this is we all scatter to different places, different schools, different counties, different whatever. But there's also something good about that too. I mean, just you're sent out and you're in spheres of influence I could never be. Are you being who God's called you to be there? Are you being faithful to what God has put before you wherever you happen to be going? Their scattering saved them from perhaps some more severe judgment or consequences down the road. And the barrier of language and culture, interestingly enough, would become the stage on which God displays the beauty of the gospel in a completely new way. In Acts chapter 2, right? All these languages have been scattered and nobody understands each other. And when God's spirit comes on Pentecost, they hear God's wonders declared in their own tongue. So God has used our own brokenness as a platform for showing his majesty and making his name known to other people in a unique sort of way. That's the mercy here, even as the judgment is coming about. God has a project of his own. He's making a name for himself by calling together a new community and a new people. And there's a cosmic vision of that in Revelation chapter 7. People from one nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered together to, to worship. And even Revelation 21. You know, Babel is the root for Babylon, which becomes throughout the Old Testament, as you'll see as we read, a picture of those who are in opposition to God. God creates a new city, a new people, with Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, where his name is made great. And it's not about Babylon making our own name great, but the new Jerusalem making the the king who reigns, Jesus Christ, his name great as well. Because the Tower of Babel project These people desire to exploit their unity, then that leads to a fractured diversity. But God's desire instead is to take people who are diverse and to make them unified. That's what the gospel is all about. I was reminded of a very simple application of this in in closing, really. And and just kind of a, a consideration for the next year. Make your home a place of hospitality. I mean, the, 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 the barriers between the community and the church are pretty significant. Home is a safer space to be. And not everybody has hospitality gifts, I, get, I, I know that. But you, you probably have neighbors and you have opportunities, I think, to, to at least consider how can I invite them into my home and make this a place where I'm demonstrating some closeness. As some of you know um, uh, Butterfield Champagne, Rosary Butterfield Champagne. She struggled with same-sex attraction for a lot of her life. And she uh, became a follower of Christ and attached to a church community. And what she discovered was that when she was kind of in a community that's largely uh, on the outs and, and, and rejected, she, they had a unity because there, there was a connection there that they had with each other that was, that was unique. And there were always open homes and always people who were available to, to embrace and to listen and to share in the hard stuff of life. And then she became a Christian, a follower of Christ, and she didn't find that. What she found was something very, very different. And so what she wrestled with in some of her books is like, how can I be in this place that says, you know, those who are scattered now have a chance to gather, and even those who aren't part of us will feel uh, welcome. 
Um, and so she's even just written, uh, recently written another book, and she talks about radical ordinary hospitality, how she and her home opens it up for anybody, no matter where they are, to, to share a meal. And she even takes opportunities. She's pretty bold. They read the Bible, and they sing afterwards, and a lot of her friends who come from different backgrounds kind of say, you're weird to her. Like, you're kind of crazy for doing this stuff. It seems a little strange. But she says when they need someone to watch their kids, when they need somebody to, to listen to when they've gone through brokenness, they come to her. So it's just a beautiful picture, I think, of the opportunity that we have for in our own scattering where you are to make your place a, a place where you come and you break bread is a, is a very practical application because sometimes messages can be like, well, that's great. Make God's great name great. Here I go home. Why not make your place a home where those who are scattered can feel like they're gathered in safety and hear the name of Christ lifted up. Father, I do pray, I don't know what comes from this in our own hearts, but I pray something would that exalts your name. And as we journey through this Bible, give us your spirit to illuminate these words to us so that they, uh, they change us and they, they convict us sometimes, certainly, but uh, we're not left alone in the Bible, conviction. Conviction's a good thing because it shows us maybe where we're not being faithful. But there's a pathway there. You, you tell us very clearly, if, we're, if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. So Father, help us to be aware of that and sensitive to it as you, we journey through your word. And we pray that our heart's desire for 2019 would be to make your name great. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.